Psalm chapter 2. I'd like to briefly tell you a story about a guy I met named Dave. Dave's not an imaginary character. He's, he really exists. I don't know him well. I just had one conversation with him. I met Dave during a summer I spent interning at an urban church plant in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dave had grown up in the small neighborhood, the same one as the pastor of the church, But due to a number of circumstances, Dave found himself currently homeless. When push came to shove, he would oftentimes be found on the church's front doorstep sleeping. And sometimes he would come by the church, get counsel, uh, receive yet again an invitation to know Christ, and then usually end up with a free meal or two out of it. On one particular day, Dave came by in a similar way, And in exchange for a free meal, the pastor of the church made him promise to tell his story from where he once started and how he got to where he currently was to myself and the other young intern in exchange for a free meal. He had to tell his story. So we took Dave out for pizza down the road, and he began to tell us his story. He told us of a fairly normal upbringing and about his growing addiction to betting on horses. In his 20s, he claimed, now obviously I have no idea if I can validate what he said, but he claimed to have inherited a half a million dollars, and within the span of four months, he had lost every penny of it, betting on horses. And I remember the hopelessness as I looked at Dave and I said, now Dave, tell me, if I were to give you $100, right now, and I were to plead with you, use this money wisely, Dave. Do something smart with it. What would be your response? And he just had this hopelessness on his face. He's like, I can't do anything else with it. I have to go straight down and spend it on horses. There was just this hopeless enslavement. Somehow, Dave's thinking had become so warped that he couldn't recognize that the very thing that he thought would bring him freedom and happiness was the very thing that was enslaving him and and destroying his life altogether. Couldn't make that connection. And in a similar way, there's a counterintuitiveness to Psalm 2. Let's look at this psalm together. Before we walk through it verse by verse, I want us to see three things. I want us to see first the rebellion of the nations in verses 1 through 3. Then I want us to see God's divine response in verses 4 through 6 as well as 7 through 9. God's divine response, 4 through 9. And finally, the invitation that's given to the nations in verses 10 through 12. The rebellion of the nations in verses 1 through 3, the divine response in verses 4 through 9, and the invitation to the nations in verses 10 through 12. And more than anything else this morning, I want you to leave with one truth, that you would know 
that we must seek true freedom in the worship of God's Son. We must seek true freedom in the worship of God's Son. Before we go any further, let's pause and ask God's help. Father, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. For our growth, for your glory, and perhaps the conversion, the repentance of one this morning, we ask that you would exalt your word as we consider it together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's first consider some background information before we jump into this psalm. Now, perhaps you've noticed in your study of the Scriptures that the book of Psalms, the Psalter, is a carefully constructed collection of five books. Each of the five main sections convey a variety of themes that oftentimes parallel the first five books of the Bible, respectively. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This has caused some to refer to the Psalms as the Pentateuch of David. The Psalms that begin and end each of these individual books, each of these five books that are within the 150 Psalms, are significant. They're significantly placed, and they typically serve as thematic bookends to that section. Similarly, the Psalter as a whole has a significant beginning and a significant ending. What is unique about the beginning of the Psalms is that both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together serve as dual gatekeepers, instructing all who would pass them in how the book must be read and understood. What Psalm 1, for those of you who can remember back of what it, what it says, Psalm 1 emphasizes by, juxtapo- by juxtaposing the blessed individual with the wicked individual. Psalm 2 similarly emphasizes, but in an even grander corporate way, So it takes what's done on a singular level and makes it plural. The two psalms work hand in hand together in beautiful ways. We'll consider more of how they do that in the moments to come. But first of all, like there are different genres of music and genres of literature, we have to understand what kind of psalm that we're dealing with. First of all, this is a royal or a, a kingship psalm. Because Psalm 2 deals directly with the anointing and the coronation of a Davidic king, it is classified as a royal psalm. Kingship is vitally important in the Scriptures, very important theme. In Genesis, we see a growing anticipation for an extraordinary king who would bring God's blessing to the nations of the earth. God then promises to Abraham that kings would come forth from him in Genesis 17. In Deuteronomy 17, we see the law instructing and regulating the particulars for how the king was to live his life and how he was to lead his people. And in the historical books, we see a large amount of history devoted to the rise of kingship and to the reigns of certain kings. One man writes, at the heart of the theology of the Psalms is the idea of kingship concerning both the human king and God as king. Although Israel had its fair share of bad kings, and we know they did, the loss of kingship altogether always resulted in painful exile and enslavement to the nations. Although Psalm 2 lacks a a superscript, you can sometimes 
know a lot about a psalm by that little superscript that comes before the first verse. It lacks this, that normally might reveal its author. The New Testament attributes in Acts chapter 4 this psalm to David. The psalm is filled with various types of parallelism, highlighting its themes, and it consists of four individual stanzas of three verses each. Perhaps your Bible even marks it out that way, helpfully, with certain space between each three verses. And the historical background to this is is unknown, but it appears that this psalm stands upon the text we just read a few moments ago from 2 Samuel 7 that was read earlier in the service concerning God's covenant with David in which David is assured of God's protection of his royal line. God's fatherhood to David and God's privileged position, his privileged position as God's son. As well as the divine promise that David's throne would be established forever. So with these these things in mind, let's now consider the first three verses of Psalm 2. Here we see the cry of the nations. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So in verse 1 here, we see the psalmist ask the question, why? Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. Immediately we're tipped off to the irony that's on display in the psalm. If it made no sense for the wicked to individually on their own resist God in Psalm chapter 1, how foolish are entire nations to position themselves in hostility against Him. Moreover, while Psalm 1 states that the godly meditate On what? They meditate on God's law. Psalm 2 states that the wicked of the earth meditate on rebellion. This is what fills their thoughts. The idea in view is that the nations, they they get together to discuss and plot and scheme and strategize vanity. Futile delusions. Their speech is morally bankrupt. So from the very outset of the psalm, we're informed that the nation's godless strivings are in vain. They are indeed futile delusions. Verse 2 reads, The kings of the earth set themselves. Meaning they, they dig in their heels and position themselves defensively against God. They have a clear enemy. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. This moral positioning is not only against God, but it is against His anointed. So then who who is this anointed one that's in view here? At Israel's coronation ceremony, a new king would swear allegiance to the covenant of the Lord He would receive the proclamation announcing his kingship, and then, and only then, he would have his head anointed with holy oil, 
marking him as God's legitimate ruler of Israel. So the anointed one here refers to any anointed king who is seated on the throne of David. However, as we will later note, there is more in view here than any Israelite king could ever or did ever accomplish. And let us be clear, by, by nations and by peoples, these are in the plural, and the psalmist means to include none other than the entire world that is in hostility to God. The psalmist has in view all who are outside the kingdom of God. He views them as united in a global uproar against God and against His anointed. This accords with Paul's words in Romans 3, 11 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We see in verse 3, it reveals the motivations of the rebellious nations. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The goal of their rebellion is a matter of lordship. They think that God's lordship is only slavery. It is bondage. It is shackles. It's imprisonment. This leads them to their furious cry to be free of God. We have one unified desire, and that is what a later psalm will say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God or no God for me. No way am I bowing the knee to Him. They offer an outright rejection of God's supremacy over them. So for most of us assembled here this morning, for most of us, those who confess faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and faith in the God who <clears throat> in these last days has spoken to us by His Son, Jesus Christ, as Hebrews says, for us the thought of an outright blatant rejection of God's rule over our lives is stunningly frightening to say those words. Our minds begin to apply solid, right theology, and we say to ourselves, well, I'd never align myself with those who dig in their heels against the Lord and against His anointed. I'd never do that. And yet, in complete honesty, we can easily begin to heed the instruction of our old selves. We can hear those treasonous voices that once proclaimed a message that defined all of us, as fellow rebels, and although we are ransomed and we are forgiven people, we can still choose to listen to those plots, those schemes, those delusions of what life might look like outside the lordship of God. There is an endless repackaging of sin, isn't there? Such that we can grow weary of the admonition to look carefully how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise. As we've been learning from Galatians, true freedom is only found in the gospel of Christ. 
It's not Jesus plus something else. It is Christ alone. But sadly, that freedom can become to us in our sinfulness sometimes a perceived roadblock to what we think is real happiness. It's what we think we need for true satisfaction. Men have the allurements of money, power, prestige, corporate politics, compromising in small areas of honesty or integrity, started to convince you that there's the the small world of the Bible that maybe I subscribe to here at the church or within the walls of this building, but then there's the way things really are. And sometimes you just got to do what you got to do to get by. I wonder, whose counsel are you heeding? Ladies, everywhere you look, everywhere you look, you're being told that you must maintain a perfect image. You must wear a certain level of clothing. You must have a model house. You must have the model family. You must produce children that excel in no less than 12 different sports and become proficient in four different instruments and know three languages by age seven. I could go on and on, but at some point, don't those voices just get so loud that we sadly start to listen to them as if they might be true? Young people, you know the Scripture's call to sexual purity, but even the mention of it to a friend at school or in a neighborhood sounds as if you've subscribed to some antiquated Amish code of ethics just makes no sense. We can start to grow weary of being different. And before long, we start to view God's lordship and his claim on our lives as bonds, as shackles. And we start to want to burst those cords apart and to cast that rule off. I fear that all of us, all of us, can have a functional theology That accords with what entertains us and what plays to our favorite idols. However, this psalm does not leave us without hope in the gospel. We will see the solution to these temptations as the psalm unfolds. But let's see now the Lord's reaction to those rebel cries from the nations. We see now the divine response in verses 4 through 9. Beginning in verse 4, we hear the Lord's words, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Such a global, unified coalition of hostility against the Lord does not cause him to retreat or apologize, or try to work out a middle ground compromise. No, the one who sits, a posture of unmitigated control and a position of divine sovereignty, he laughs, holding them in derision. Now God's reaction here, don't misunderstand it, this is not hilarity. This is not joy. This is not some sadistic pleasure that he takes. This is righteous scorn and mockery 
at the foolishness of even thinking that true freedom in life comes apart from Him. Ridiculousness. This elicits God's wrath as He rebukes them with divine fury. Verse 6 leading into verse 7 reveals the centerpiece of the psalm. We see verses 1 through 5 await this response, and then verses 8 through 12 sort of expound God's response. Let's expound upon it. Verse 6 begins with this emphatic I in Hebrew. As for me, I have set. What does that mean? I have installed. I have officially installed my king on Zion, my holy hill, a mountain of holiness. This Davidic king is divinely installed with all the authority of heaven to the rule of Zion's throne. In verses 7 through 9, the speaker shifts now to the Lord's anointed. We read, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. As previously noted, These words in verse 7 allude to God's covenant with David, in which he is regarded as God's own son. So God's perspective to he who sits on Zion's throne, Jerusalem's throne, is to relate to him as a true son. This language resonates as language present in the coronation ceremony in which the Son of God would have been installed as king. The nations... The very ends of the earth are regarded as an inheritance to this king. All authority is given to him to exercise justice as he sees fit, breaking the wills of all who resist his God-given authority. His rod or his scepter is a symbol of his rule, and it is a means to his discipline and his judgment. As a way of illustrating this, The founding of the United States of America has provided us, as its citizens, with a love for stories similar to our own. We love to hear of marginalized, trampled-upon groups that rise up and say no more against despots and corrupt governments and organizations abusing their power. However, a hunger for freedom is not an end to itself. At the end of the day, all of us are subservient to someone or something. So the question is, are you ruled by the right person? Are you ruled by the right person? This psalm illustrates perfectly that the unbridled longing for independence earns the laughter and the scorn of God. This delusion that freedom apart from Him is what will satisfy us, this is the very definition of insanity. Nothing could be more counterintuitive to the logic of heaven. All true life is connected to Him. Oftentimes, earthly kings are given the right, and earthly rulers, we see this today, are given the right to rule a certain country or a certain region. But due to corrupt or powerful individuals that are on the ground or organizations that have a lot of power, 
that right that he might possess doesn't really mean anything. They might as well not even have the title to begin with, right? Maybe we don't see this as frequent in our culture, but certainly all around the globe. What you need then is a ruler who not only has the right, but also possesses the might to enforce that. When you are ruled by God's anointed king of Zion, you're ruled by the right person. In the course of human history, there really are only two options. The feudal delusion of self-rule by the nations or the true reality of God's rule by His anointed Son of David. So what will it be? What's the choice? In case you have begun to form an opinion, a wrong one, I would add, but in case you've started to have a perspective about God here from this text that sees Him as a tyrannical dictator who laughs at His created beings, we can't miss the contribution of verses 10 through 12. Observe the patience and the kindness of our sovereign Lord as an invitation is offered in these final verses. Here we see the call to the nations, the invitation to the nations. Verses 10 through 12 read, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Similar to the book of Proverbs and its call to wisdom, there is a plea for the kings and rulers to rightly assess their situation. As one commentator notes, they are not given an ultimatum, but an invitation. Such is the heart of God for rebels who shake their fists at Him. This gracious invitation is to serve Yahweh with fear, to rejoice before Him with trembling. And then verse 12 states, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. And you might ask, how can such kindness be extended in the context of such a fierce warning? These seem incompatible. Well, without such warning we lose any comprehension of how valuable this grace really is. The phrase here, kiss the sun, is different to us. It doesn't strike our modern ear as normal. But it means to pay or to do homage, basically to worship the sun. This son of David, this son of God, this anointed one, who is installed on Zion's hill. As the nations come to worship this son, they find the meaning of true freedom. And they no longer know God's wrath on, on account of their rebellion. Finally, Psalm 2 concludes in the same manner Psalm 1 began, with a blessing. These are the two bookends, you might say, to this grand introduction to the Psalms. We read, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. 
what the nations interpret as captivity, is actually security and bliss. There is no refuge from Him, only in Him, as one man writes. There is no refuge from Him, only in Him. Union with God and with His Son, His anointed Son, is our only hope if we would escape the laughter, the scorn, the anger, and ultimately the holy and just wrath of God. So how can we read a psalm like this? There may have been lights going off as you were reading it, but how can we read a psalm like this without seeing messianic fulfillment everywhere? Never was there a king of Israel who fulfilled this psalm to its all-encompassing scope. With the destruction of the monarchy and the exile to Babylon, any fulfillment of this song, this, this psalm here looked bleak. However, there was a son of David who was born hundreds of years later, who would live a life of perfect submission to the Father's will. In his own body, he experienced the prophesied opposition of the nations and their rulers against him, for he was indeed the true Son of God. Psalm 2 pervades a multitude of New Testament texts. At both Jesus' baptism and his transfiguration, a voice from heaven rings out, This is my beloved Son. And at his baptism, it goes on to say, In whom I am well pleased. Furthermore, Paul specifically quotes in Psalm 2-7, quotes Psalm 2-7 in Acts 13 when he affirms the resurrection of Jesus. Peter and John quote Psalm 2 in application to the opposition of Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and people of Israel who opposed and later killed Jesus. These men later apply it to their own persecutions while relaying the gospel message in the first century. Paul states in Romans 1-4 that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. This is what Jesus, what is said of Jesus exceeds the accomplishments of any human king of Israel. Jesus' unique birth set him apart as the Son of God. The demons recognized him as the Son of God. His disciples worshipped him because he was the Son of God. The centurion at the foot of the cross recognized him as the Son of God. John's entire gospel was written that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing they might have life in his name. And we must indeed kiss, worship the Son this morning, for refuge is only found in Him. Perhaps you've joined us this morning in the very notion of submitting to a God who demands the allegiance of every person on the face of the globe is distasteful, to say the least. Perhaps you much prefer to see every religion as offering a unique voice to whatever higher power or metaphysical reality that people want to believe in. Let me encourage you to deeply consider whether trusting in a God who truly is supreme, who truly is completely sovereign, who orchestrates this world according to His purposes, who freely forgives rebels, 
and offers eternal refuge to those who once demanded and dug their heels in, saying they wanted nothing to do with him? Is this the kind of God that you want to resist? Is this the kind of God you can resist? Is he one you want to ignore? He's calling you, as the call echoes in this psalm, to be wise. Be wise. Rightly assess your current situation of hostility against him and recognize that he is able to be your refuge. For those of us who have repented of our sins and have come to find refuge in worshiping this anointed son of David, are you continuing in your desire to seek your refuge in him? Do you realize the promise for those who overcome? The very rod of iron, that scepter that is mentioned in Psalm 2, is also mentioned in Revelation in reference to Jesus twice, in reference to Jesus' eternal reign as God's Son. But it's mentioned a third time. Believers are also given this rod of iron and receive the privilege of ruling with Christ over the nations. Certainly a privilege we don't deserve. Will we, as believers, press on to believe in the precious promises of God's Son? Will we guard our hearts through the power of the Scriptures against those rebellious lies of the world and hostility against Him? Sin will always, always have the best marketing strategies. They always do. Selling us on what true freedom ought to look like selling us with those ageless lies of, you deserve this, you're even entitled to this. To not do this is not to be human, everyone does this. And on and on they go. Have you heard these lies? Use the means of grace that God has given to us here in this assembly. Use God's church Use fellowship, accountability with brothers and sisters in the Lord, regular teaching and preaching, personal prayer, Bible study, and more and more and more to help you as we together seek to untangle the nasty web of lies that corroded our thinking before we submitted to the Lordship of Christ. We are all a mess seeking to cling to and to worship this anointed Son. It's good for us to consider Psalm 2 on Palm Sunday because as we meditate on the sufferings of our Savior and as we prepare our hearts to celebrate Jesus' victory over the grave next week, we're reminded of the costliness of what it means to make worshipers out of rebels. It's not a piece of cake. Ask God's Son. Instead of smashing every sinful rebel into pieces like the potter's vessel in verse 9 of Psalm 2, Jesus himself was pierced for our transgressions. He, as we sung about a few moments ago, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. 
Our only freedom, our only refuge is found in worshiping this Son. It seems fitting that we ceremonially and symbolically remember together as a church that we believe that this is true, that it's worth it to worship the Son. That as we observe the Lord's table together in just a few moments, union with God through Christ is true freedom. Let's pray.